This episode of the Sober Curious podcast is supported by Athletic Brewing alcohol-free craft beers, and you can get 20% off your first order at athleticbrewing.com with the code RUBY20. So as we move out of the pandemic, yay, I'm hearing a lot of Sober Curious folks feeling the pressure to socialize again. And for anybody who's ready to join the summer fun, but without the hangover, Athletic have a brew for you. Crafted in state-of-the-art breweries in Connecticut and California, their mission is to provide beers that are packed with all the flavor and none of the alcohol. The result is a line of delicious, refreshing beers starting at just 50 calories a can, making them the perfect addition to any healthy lifestyle. Athletic beers are in stores nationwide and they also ship online. Place an order today at athleticbrewing.com and get free shipping on two six-packs or more. And remember, new customers can also get 20% off their entire order with the code RUBY20. That's limited to one use per customer at athleticbrewing.com. Welcome back to the Sober Curious podcast, a place for conversations about living a more conscious, connected and present life. I'm your host, Ruby Warrington, and my guest today is Dr. Nicole LaPera aka The Holistic Psychologist. Given her extensive social media following, it's very likely that you're familiar with Nicole's work, which has helped to democratize the field of psychotherapy. On her Instagram account, Nicole has made theories, tools, and practices for what she terms self-healing available and accessible to millions of people. And her new book, which is titled How to Do the Work, breaks down her approach for creating positive change in our lives. In this episode, we talk about how this applies to being sober curious and how part of the healing path is to reevaluate the impact of alcohol and other substances on our mental and emotional health. Nicole also talks about her own journey with substances and why it often feels easier to cling to what we know, even when we know it's hurting us. She also breaks down in detail exactly what is happening in our brains when we reach for drink and other drugs to numb out, dissociate, or self-medicate. Which is just a fraction, honestly, of everything we cover in this episode, which was full of light bulb moments for me. I hope you get as much out of it as I did. This is Nicole LaPera. Nicole, welcome. Thank you for having me, Ruby. It's so good to meet you in person. I've just been following your work like so many for a while now and just like, thank you, thank you, thank you for presenting all of this subject matter in a way that's so accessible and so applicable to our actual lives. I think that's what I really love about your work. And it dovetails so much with what I tried to do with Sober Curious, which is like go, hey, you are in control here, right? You're the one who gets to live your life you're the one who gets to examine what's not working and to make the changes. It come, it's you, yeah. right? No, no one or no thing outside of you is going to do that for you. So, yeah. And I feel like your new book is just like a brilliant toolbox to help people dive into that in every area of life, you know? Well, I appreciate you saying, especially the words practical and applicable, because that is really important to me in my work. And I couldn't agree more. You, you do the work of empowerment and I think that's what it means to heal is really to empower oneself against whatever it is, pattern, habit, um, symptomology, if you will, that we're trying to break. And I think for a very long time, we've, as, as a collective, even struggled 
to do that. I would say it day in and day out in my office, which of course inspires me to work in this new way and having met your work and many other people who are talking the more practical, okay, these are great ideas. What does this mean? Um, it empowers me. So thank you. Mm, awesome. So let's dive straight in with the work. Like your book is called How to Do the Work. And I love that title because it's really, it feels really intriguing. And it seems it sets up this idea of like the work as something kind of like that we really want to get to grips with and get our teeth into, I think. So how do you, what is the work? Like in a nutshell, how do you describe that? Yeah, so the work for me, um, I think really you're, you're hitting something that it, it is action, the actioning of change. And what I mean when I say that, and this is informed by, you know, my own personal history, um, struggling, you know, in a lot of ways, as a lot of us do with anxiety, with negative habits and patterns, and also informed by my clinical work. And what I would see, you know, week after week, year after year in myself and, and really pretty much the vast majority of my clients is a lot of insight and very little action, very little change. And I came to understand, you know, and, and I speak about it every day on Instagram and in my book, I came to understand the reason why. Um, the reason why we struggle to change as, as humans in general is because a very powerful part of our brain that doesn't like change. So what the work means to me is harnessing that reality that changing does include action steps that go outside of, whether it's the treatment room and, you know, mental wellness or the medical room, really anything, because our subconscious follows us and is is that you know pattern running machine for lack of a better word that we're living day in and day out so it's 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 a two-pronged approach it's of course insight is incredibly important understanding maybe the habits and patterns that are keeping us stuck though that second piece that action those daily very small i call them small daily promises the daily ways that we can create and maintain change is what the work means to me so it kind of might, and this is where holistic psychology comes in. It's like, this is about your mind understanding something and then bringing your body and your emotions on board to actually go, okay, how are we going to, how are we going to bring this into our lives and how are we going to use this to enact change? And I think as well, like, sometimes I feel like, you know, in the realm of personal transformation and personal development, we talk a lot about wanting to change, wanting to transform. And for me, within this context, I feel like it means like getting better, you know, and not getting better from a performance perspective, but like, we all have stuff that's just making us feel shitty, like on some level, you know, and we all want to get better. And so for me, that's where the change or transformation piece comes in. It's not about like this endless pursuit of perfection or feeling like we're not good enough as we are but there's all for some for all of us there's something where we feel like this is a block for me or this is like a pattern I keep falling back into and this is something that keeps coming up and I just I need to move beyond it and a lot of the reason so to piggyback on that absolutely a lot of the reason we're stuck um, lives in what I call imbalances so you spoke very beautifully what holistic means to me is really marrying the mind the body and I believe that we have this indescribable entity the more spiritual around the soul, whatever we want to call it, the uniqueness that makes each of us the unique individual we are. And I think what, what has happened, I guess, in the field for so long is we've, we've had this silo approach where everything is treated as separate. And what I've come to realize is a lot of the disconnect between, for lack of better, you know, I think the language a lot of us are familiar with, the disconnect between knowing better and doing better, right, lays in what you very beautifully put, the body, the emotional piece. And because a lot of us are stuck in a dysregulated body, sometimes even out most of the time outside of our own awareness that can't override 
even the most profound insight, the knowing better in a lot of these moments. So it is really understanding and you very beautifully and eloquently, oftentimes the journey of healing is of peeling back layers, of removing the shame, the dysregulation, possibly all of the ways that I now show up in the world to protect myself or keep myself safe in that familiar way of being, the, re the return home, kind of the onion analogy or metaphor, right, where we peel it all back. So you said, you know, very astutely, the shame, and we all kind of like criticize ourselves. It's so beautiful because the work is really going back into wholeness for many of us. So it's not changing who we are. It's more kind of like touching back with who we really are underneath all of the kind of like behaviors and stuff that's laid on top, often as an attempt to kind of protect us, keep us safe, keep us from harm, which then becomes dysfunctional when it prevents us from actually living our lives. 100%. And the things that most of us are struggling with daily, so to speak to your work, right? The the substances we use, the things that we do all in for a lot of us, that just is the way we show up in the world. Like I offered earlier, my, you know, for me, it was assuming the helper role in all of my relationships. So it isn't even necessarily, I think the traditional bad things that we do for a lot of us, it's just the ways that we're showing up that aren't allowing us to feel maybe fulfilled, fully connected or authentic in ourselves, And that is kind of the surface. So I love the way you talk about you know, kind of diving down and understanding, because that is the work of healing. Again, that return to the full self that was there the all self, along. Yeah. And again, just got covered and muddied and we've gotten disconnected from it. Yeah, right. Um, I'd love to see if we could just kind of like dive in with talking about how substance abuse and that's particularly alcohol. It's the kind of like the foundation of my work, although this conversation can be applied to any kind of substance abuse use. <laughs> or kind of like behavior patterns, which are keeping us stuck, um, to put it kind of simply. But specifically speaking to a substance like alcohol, which is so readily available that many people, that's their thing. How does that kind of get in the way of us doing the work? So how does using alcohol, because there's a case study in your book where you talk about seeing a client for many years and she kind of keeps repeating these same patterns. And it's almost like the more she, the more she gets ingrained in these patterns the more alcohol she starts using to kind of like cover it up or and then and then the alcohol becomes a problem too so yeah how would you how do you think that alcohol specifically can kind of like hamper our healing process well your alcohol does produce an effect right in each of us whether it's hand, that disconnect the dissociating the numbing so it's different. The answer to this, right? How does it affect me is going to be unique to whoever the me is. What's important, um, what's important for us to explore if you are someone, you know, who is util whatever it is that you're using, why, right? What is, what are the contexts? What are the moments? What is this helping me to do? And that's when we gain the understanding of what impact is it having? So I'll use myself for an example. I discovered alcohol and pot, marijuana when I was... 13 years old, very early 13. As someone who historically before that point, now I would never have used this language at the time, I wouldn't have known what I was doing. But growing up in a household where there was big emotions, um, there was a lot going on. One of my family mantras just so happens to be always something. And always something meant very high anxiety, right? The next fire to put out. And so with that said, as me, as a very young individual, those feelings felt very overwhelming because I did not have the caregiver, the parent figure that could 
they couldn't necessarily navigate those emotions themselves, let alone contain what they were feeling to right, get on the knee, explain to me, help me tolerate this stress. So what did I do? I developed a habit of what I now know how to call it. It's called dissociation, which really means disconnecting. I, I've come to fondly term it my spaceship. I would go away. And so to the naked eye, to anyone observing me, I appeared there. I was going about life. However, again, I was protected on my spaceship. So when I became 13 and I was introduced to these substances, right, that now was the external thing I could take that helped numb me, that helped disconnect me. So for me, my function was that was in service of keeping me safe, keeping me away from the feelings that I never learned how to cope with on my own. And now I utilize those substances, you know, on and off for the better part, probably until I entered my 30s. When I came to, you know, I, I by then I was on my healing journey. I was able to do all this self-exploration that I'm sharing. And then I came to understand what the function of those substances, those tools, if you were, were, they were further helping me to stay disconnected. So again, a lot of pathways look like that, but for what's important is to understand what is the why? Cause I'm of the belief that there is a why there's a reason why we're ingesting whatever it is that we're ingesting. Um, and it, it's playing a function. So once we understand what that function is, now we have the opportunity to do two things. We can break that old subconscious habit, which for many of us, it is. I don't even notice and I'm halfway down my third beer, right? And I check in, oh, I don't mean to be, I'm not supposed to be drinking. So I notice that that's not the habit or the pattern that I want to utilize right now. And then I create the opportunity to, as I say, make a new choice to learn something else now to do because we have, we can't just take away, right? The, the medication, uh, we need to now learn some new tools, whether it's reaching out for support, um, or learning a new way to express our emotions or learning how to regulate ourselves. So once we understand our why, what the function of our choices or our behaviors are, that allows us, like I said, to pattern interrupt, to begin to create space for the opportunity to make a new choice. And then we need to start to find the new choices that can help fill that need. Thank you. That was such a great explanation. And I'm so happy that it's centralized around this discovering the why piece. That's something which I talk about in my work all the time and just came to very, very intuitively. Like I'm not a trained therapist. I'm not a doctor. Like I say this all the time, just covering myself here. But at the same time, like I trust I've trusted my own path and I've been able to, for whatever reason, well, maybe we'll even discuss for whatever reason, but, um, but I've come to a place where I'm like, okay, I trust that what I think is going to work for me is going to work for me. And the thing that I landed on with, with changing any kind of habit is only when you know the why can you really work out your why not? Because like only then can you find something to, well, either replace the thing or to look at, okay, it's why it's because I have these feelings oh, I don't have a name for those feelings because nobody ever taught me what those feelings are. I need to work, work out what these feelings are. <laughs> oh, this, this feeling is called like discomfort or this feeling is called um, shame or this feeling is called vulnerability. Oh, interesting. Now I have a name for this thing. I can actually start to research it and I can start to understand it and I can understand that it's not something to be ashamed of or that I need to push away and that it's actually a part of me and it's okay for it to be a part of me. And then once I've got to that place, it's like needing the thing, the substance just kind of dissolves away. It no longer has any use for me because I don't, I just don't need it anymore. You know? Absolutely. And I'm, I'm really, I'm glad you, you threw out that word in your, in your description of shame. 
Um, one of the reasons why I always speak of the kind of behind the scenes, the why, this power of our subconscious, this kind of mechanism that a lot of us are using things outside of ourselves to cope, to feel better, is, beca is because we do feel very shameful. Um, and I've worked in the substance use field in multiple different, you know, contexts of addiction, early recovery, late recovery. And I know shame is, is really high up there, right? We feel shameful and broken because we can't stop using these substances to really simplify it. And I'm here to say, actually, you're, you know, the people that are using the substances are quite adaptive. We're all quite adaptive. We found our way for some of us in really difficult, almost intolerable external circumstances. So to relieve that shame, you know, even a little bit for someone to empower them through the understanding that actually you did the best you could with what you had. You're quite adaptive, quite resilient. You're quite stuck now. That's not to say that you're, you're quite stuck because you're quite dysregulated, though there's tools and there's a way that we can find a path forward. And that's what I'm so interested in because I feel like these old models um, were really limiting. They didn't really give us. So just for instance, me as someone who anxiety was all I knew. Um, I you, coming out of my mouth in my twenties, I was very much a proponent. Well, once an anxious person, always an anxious person. I have to take my medicine. I have to do the things I'm never going to be over anxiety. Right. Unless. So I, I think for a lot of us, we have those limiting beliefs. We think that I'm stuck or maybe I'm stuck in this addiction forever. So empowering, I think part of the the new world of mental wellness that I hope to see ushered in, and I think it is coming in, is, is one that doesn't have those stories of limitation that might acknowledge all of the difficulty, right? All of the discomfort, all of the ways we are stuck, but might just right, open the door a little bit to see a pathway toward healing, toward change, toward a future that doesn't contain these, these patterns that many of us are just cycling around in, causing even more shame. Right. Right. The shame coming from the sense of like, I'm broken. There's literally something I'm some, I'm sort of defective in some way. And I feel like sometimes when we're able to trace this back to childhood traumas or difficult kind of time developing, even there can be a sense of like, well, I'm just, I was just kind of like made this yeah. way. Like I'm never going to be able to change. And I suppose this is something that the conversation with you, I, I felt called to share. Like I'm the product of a woman who did her work. Like my mother had a very, very difficult childhood and was very distressed when I was a, in, in utero and then as a young child. And I started my sucking my thumb age two, which I think was my first way of like dissociating. And then as soon as I could read, I'd read like three books a week because I was in my little kind of fantasy world with books. And then, of course, alcohol comes along. And it's like, oh, now I can dissociate and be popular and cool. This is perfect. <laughs> I no longer have to be the kind of like swatty geek. But anyway, from my from my kind of my mom went into her own therapy when she when I was probably like 20 or so and actually trained to be a therapist in her 60s. And it's just been amazing to watch her completely change, completely kind of like transform and see her go from an extremely anxious very troubled person to really, really secure. Like she spent the whole of lockdown, she's in her 70s, living on her own in Suffolk, hasn't been able to see any family. I speak to her every week and she's like, fine. She's not stressed. She's not anxious. She's just kind of doing it. And I'm like, you are incredible. And I feel like so grateful to have been the recipient of that as her child. And I think it's just been such proof actually that, yeah, we can, we really can turn it around. It doesn't matter how late we come to the work. 
it doesn't matter what kind of what we've experienced in our childhood necessarily we can there's always an opportunity for us to kind of turn it around and then pay that forward to our other relationships and the other people in our lives you know absolutely and I'll go as far to say is that that is how I believe we do pay it for we do create the change outside of ourselves it begins as we create change in ourselves because it does then change the way we show up whether it's just in our day-to-day right and then the experiences that ripple out or, or the people that we're interacting with and then obviously those of us as a lot of us do go on to you know teach the work in some iteration whether or not it's just modeling it for everyone around us or you know putting it down in book form like you and I have done so you know it, it is it is through the process of it that I actually go on to say and I speak about this in my book and often is the most powerful change. A lot of us look outside of ourselves, and I did this for a very long time. I would have unsuccessful relation. I did have unsuccessful relationship after unsuccessful relationship. And before I understood the role that my own conditioning was playing, or in other words, the role that I was playing, how I was showing up in these relationships, if I'm honest, Ruby, what I did, I pointed my finger at every partner and I expressed how they were the reason why this relationship ended. And I think in many ways, we all tend to do that. And this happens, and I get this question a lot, very well-intentioned, how do I get my partner to change, my mom to change, right? My adult child to change. How do I get change to happen outside of me? And again, I'm I'm typically the bearer of the bad news, which is we're very limited. We cannot create change outside of ourselves. However, the most impactful change we can offer someone is by modeling right? By modeling these new, these new choices, these new habits. And then the more we practice them ourselves, like I said earlier, the more we're different. And now we're changing the dynamics of the relationships we're in. Again, this isn't to negate. I understand how difficult and complicated, especially with quarantine and living in close quarters, possibly with family around us and loved ones that aren't changing, um, not, not invalidating that, but just honoring we are limited, right? We, we can empower ourselves Um, And a lot of us have that habit of waiting for the thing outside to be different, to feel different, myself included. Mm. And honoring as well that it takes time. time. Like what I just described (laughs) with my mom, that's been like a a 30 year journey, you know, it's like, it's not like the flick a switch or take this pill and then it's all different. It's like, this is where you talk about it's, this is daily work. It's like a daily practice of noticing your habits like noticing what what what's showing up for you investigating it interrogating it sitting with it like and and making the sometimes very difficult counterintuitive challenging changes to your own actions and your own words and things like that and in my opinion there's a reason ruby why that i can offer here why it has to be a daily process I was looking for that magic elixir called the light switch, my, my hippie hammock in the sky where I can be, right? The word that we all want to be done, <laughs> done, right? Here's why we can't be done because we're ever evolving creatures, right? So I need to prepare myself for the unknown, the uncertainty of tomorrow, right? I'm 38 now. Hopefully I have many more years of evolution and of changing. So we need to learn how to incorporate the tools for, you know, very simplistically inside to navigate the implicit uncertainty of tomorrow. And this is another place where us mm-hmm. humans struggle. Um, so again, this concept of doneness or this idea that if I figure it out now and I just keep marching that path, that I'll be good. Um, I call that in a question. Cause like I said, I don't know what 48 looks and feels like in my life. I don't know what 58 looks and feels like. Um, so with that said, true empowerment, I believe comes when I 
feel that I can walk into that unknown uncertainty and walk through whatever comes next. Which 2020 has, <laughs> this will be coming out next year, but 2020 has certainly been like a lesson and a practice in that for anyone who already identifies with doing the work, this is like a year like this is kind of the ultimate test. In I it, think it's the ultimate the test. And I think it, it's tested us in, in terms of a lot of the, the concepts that I talk about. I mean, in just the most surface simplistic, it is, the biggest pattern interrupt, our daily lives, none of them yeah. look the same. So we're already challenging that subconscious that prefers the familiar, even though you might be thinking, well, I hate it, I'm happy that I don't have, right? It's the familiar that we know. So just to be clear, yeah. as humans, we really gravitate toward that which is known, which just means I've done it before. It doesn't mean it's serving me. So from the most surface level, 2020 is a huge right challenge to our subconscious because we're all living a different life. And then obviously, you add complications of who are we spending time with, of whether or not we're someone, as a lot of us are, who are storing trauma right, in our subconscious and in our body. So the trauma of this pattern interrupt with a lot of us losing jobs, losing, losing income, maybe again, being in close proximity with relationships that challenge us or possibly do traumatize us emotionally, activate us, right? So now we get even more complicated. A lot of us are being thrown into that trauma body reaction I talk a lot about. Um, again, making change and the maintenance of change incredibly difficult. Mm. So there's a chapter in your book that's all called A New Theory on, on Trauma. And there's a quote, which I love that I pulled out. And you say, trauma creates the fundamental belief that we must betray who we are in order to survive. And I just like, that's the kind of quote that gives me chills. I'm like, oh. <laughs> could you maybe just like unpack what you mean by that quote specifically? 100%. I, I'll start by saying, um, expressing a little bit of gratitude and then uh, giving a slight, a quick explanation of why I call it expanded version. So in the nineties, in the field psychology, we, there was a very seminal study um, it, it occurred over many years. Um, listeners might have heard of it. It's called the ACEs study, reverse childhood experiences scale, I think it is. Um, anyway, long story short, at that time, we had the, the experimental evidence that quote unquote trauma in childhood. Now, the way trauma was defined in that study is really important. Trauma being defined as the sexual abuse, the physical abuse, the neglect, having a parent with a severe mental illness, having a parent incarcerated, there might have been one or more in there along the same lines. That is how we define trauma at that time. What we did was we studied people who experienced trauma in their childhood and it followed them through life. And at that point, we had the evidence that trauma that happens at any time in the past carries with it effects, consequences, namely psychological, emotional, or physical with medical diagnoses that abound, health issues, et cetera, obviously psycho psychological diagnoses. I've come to believe, so I, I learned that, right? Trauma causes symptoms. Mm -hmm. This was particularly mm -hmm. confusing for me because when someone like me, when I took the, the ACEs scale, I only scored a one, which is very low in, in, in all things considered. Um, I think upwards of 60% of our population scored a one. However, what I saw working with people who scored very high, upwards of 10 in all different contexts, I would see the same habits and patterns, whether or not it's like we were talking about earlier, right? Substance use into what one might call quote unquote an addiction, whether it was relationship histories that just aren't fulfilling or downright problematic. So I began to wonder why, you know, and again, I, I indulged all this brokenness, you know, I must be broken. There must be something wrong with me. Oh my gosh, I'm so dissociated. I'm not 
fulfilled in my relationships. I'm not connecting what's wrong. I shouldn't be struggling this much. So what I've come to find out is that 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 scope of that definition is much too narrow, that there's a lot of experiences that many of us have in childhood and accumulate over time that cause those same sort of patterns into adulthood. So I speak about a much more expanded definition. Um, a lot of it, you know, is kind of uh, revolves around our spiritual self or this essence, this usness. Right. And I believe um, that each of us, however it is that you believe we come here, we have a deep desire to, for three things to happen, to be seen, to be heard and to be acknowledged, just expressing as we are. Now, what happens in childhood is really pivotal for most of us, because in childhood, we're born into some family constellation. Of course, it's different for all of us. And we're born. The human infant is born in a complete state of dependency meaning we cannot survive, here's that word, on our own. We need our physical needs, or we're reliant on our caregivers, whoever they might be, to meet our physical needs, to meet our emotional needs, and to create the space so we can be seen and just us, right? Just using around. Now, in absence of that, and very few of us, right, have the, the healed caregiver that's able to create the space quite simply because they were raised by humans themselves, all of our parental figures, everyone was. So they're limited by what was, to really keep it simple, by what was been taught to them. Now, again, as children, as that little reliant, dependent creature, we're also, like I said earlier, incredibly adaptive. And because we need, quote unquote, these relationships to literally survive physically, and then of course that shifts over to emotionally survive, we began to make those adaptations. We are so attuned to the world around us that we learn, you know, how to show up to maintain those connections to ensure that our needs are met. And what a lot of us end up doing is this is when, you know, kind of us assuming those roles start, whether or not you resonate with the caregiver, the helper, the party person, you know, the, the easy go lucky. I mean, the roles really are innumerable. But at that time, and I'm of the belief that those roles played a function. Here's that kind of exploration again. I learned how to maintain the relationships that are most important to me by learning how to show up in a way that continued those relationships. And I'm of the belief that the more we do that and the more we're constricting and repressing and expressing only parts of ourselves, we're actually creating another system of imbalance. Like I said, we're putting another layer over the onion and possibly somewhere down the line, if we do this consistently enough. Now, just to be clear, this isn't the one time my parent couldn't acknowledge me because they were busy. This is when it's consistent. So for me, I had consistently distracted caregivers who were tending to the fires, very understandably. So consistently when that happens, we consistently modify ourselves. And then, like I said, we create another system of imbalance where by the time we're an adult, all I am is the helper that shows up. What happened to the rest of me? And that's, I believe, how we become constricted. And again, all of the symptoms, some of us can experience symptomology as a result of it. Um, and again, so the pathway of healing is understanding the function. Um, what are the adaptations that we've each made? Um, chances are they've been there. And then how do we, again, find our way back to our authentic self? So this idea of trauma then is sort of like interwoven sort of almost imperceptibly with 
the um, behaviors, adaptations that we sort of learn and that become habitual about how to stay safe. And safe equally means getting fed and, you know, actually, well, let's just keep it as basic as getting fed and having somewhere with a roof over our head to sleep and being seen, being understood, being made to feel like we are valued and we actually have a place in the world. Like we, we deserve to be here because we need it. Absolutely. And then safe becomes that which is familiar. So whatever adaptation worked then, when I start to veer out, right. And show that shameful part of me, that's going to feel so uncomfortable. I might convince myself out of doing it entirely, or I might do it once and be like, Oh, that was very uncomfortable. Probably means I shouldn't do it again. And then before I know it, I'm right back in that constricted self. So safe over time began, right? Like you said, is very much like making sure my need is met. And then what the, the definition that safety takes on is familiar. Because I know a lot of times there might be listeners out there. Mm-hmm. I was like, this makes no sense. I know that these things I'm doing aren't quote unquote safe, yet I can't stop doing them. So just to be clear, safety then is just that repetition that I know this aspect of myself. I'm not shamed, for instance, when I show this part of myself to the world. If I try to show this part of myself to the world, I feel so uncomfortable. I go right back into my zone of familiar. Right. And it's even just making me think about how alcohol almost plays like a double role here, because here is a substance which on the one hand is an anesthetic. And so it numbs any feelings of discomfort that we may have about like expressing ourselves Whilst on the other hand, it kind of like makes it feel, yeah, makes us more expressive and makes us feel like we're more safe to be our true self and to maybe kind of like act out in ways that feel like they're true to us that have been suppressed in some ways. But then whatever is suppressed starts coming out often in really kind of strange and (laughs) kind of like needy, desperate kind of, yeah, unhealthy ways. Mm -hmm. And alcohol does do that by suppressing actually a part of our brain the frontal or the prefrontal Mm. cortex, where is where we're able to inhibit the impulses that maybe our lower brain regions, right? The desire to scream Mm. and yell, um, able to inhibit it. So it's actually a suppressant of, so again, as all things, they map on to something that's happening in our brain or our body that's contributing to that. So yeah, on the surface, especially I hear a lot of times people who suffer from social anxiety or what we call social anxiety. I'm out and I'm hypervigilant. Again, I believe this is a function of our nervous system of a dysregulated state where again, there was a lack of safety. So now I'm hypervigilant to make sure that I'm safe at all costs. Unfortunately, that hypervigilance shifts and we become primed to see threats everywhere we go. And a lot of times when I worked with people who resonate or have had that experience socially, alcohol becomes the lubricant that's desired. Oh, I don't, I, I'm, a, I'm a little less inhibited. I can be myself or so we think a bit more. And like I said, there's a physiological reason um, why alcohol does that because it actually affects our brain in a way that allows us to do that. Though you're right, there's consequences. Um, who's to say, we don't even know if that impulse is actually us, if it's coming again from that deeper, more childhood place, that wound, that need, um, there's a lot that gets complicated then I think when we become that impulsive, reactive person that alcohol really kind of lubricates us to be. Mm, Absolutely. And we're not able to actually make connections necessarily between what's happening in the moment and what might have happened in the past. There's just so much gets lost in the mix. It's making me think specifically about social anxiety. I remember a a colleague sort of described to me once that she didn't really resonate with AA because she's like, I'm just not a joiner. 
I'm just not a joiner. I'm not a group person. And I'm like, ha, ah, me too. Okay. Yeah. That's why that didn't really work for me. Like I've just never really felt comfortable in groups. And yes, I had social anxiety. And so I started researching this a bit more and just, and I found some, um, some work that was sort of saying, well, if you have social anxiety and identify as this, not a joiner, like not a group person that can often be tracked back to your, how you felt in your original group, which was your family. Like our family is the first group that we find ourselves a part of and in sort of like a group dynamic with. So if you weren't sure of your place there, or as you say, you were having to be hypervigilant because you didn't know when you were going to get attention. You didn't know when you were going to get validation. You didn't know when you were going to get what you needed, whatever that might be. Then you kind of like, yeah, develop in adulthood, this kind of just anxiety around groups. And when I think about how many people cite social anxiety as one of the number one reasons that they use alcohol, it just makes me think how many of us grew up in those kinds of environments. But like you say, we've had this really kind of narrow idea about what trauma is and for anyone, particularly anyone who's grown up with any degree of privilege, there's often a lot of guilt around like, I had so much, how dare I feel like I didn't have a good childhood or that I wasn't cared for. Like all of my needs were taken care of. Like, how dare I feel that that wasn't enough? You know, yeah. is that something that you see in your practice too? I think we all, a lot of us at least have that endless, you know, in, I, internal critic um, that just offers endless commentary, not usually in the positive direction, about most all of our experiences, whether it's the thoughts we're having, we endlessly judge those. We judge the experiences and the reactions that we witness ourselves having. Um, I do think I call it the critical parent. Um, I think a lot of us have that that space in our brain and you know become and and judge things as good or bad. Um, that's a lot of language, and and we do invalidate ourselves. Um, you know, we kind of if we don't feel we've experienced something that should warrant, we love the word should, this part of our brain, right? This type of reaction, if we see that type of reaction in ourselves, we can get you know, very, very critical. And again, the work is, in my opinion, to expand, to absolutely witness all that is present. A lot of us, right, like me, went on my spaceship. I didn't wanna see, it was too uncomfortable to see and feel everything. When we do the work of healing, a lot of discomfort does come up. We need to learn how to create safety. You know, this is part of the, the, the kind of foundational journey. We need to learn how to create safety, a new sense of safety for many of us in ourselves so that as we begin to peel back the onion, right, and as all the discomfort and all the awareness comes to the surface, we need to empower ourselves to know, to develop that internal resilience and knowing and empowerment that we can begin to, like I said, dip our toe in to that which is uncomfortable and tolerate it. And a lot of us, like I said, have, haven't done that, have bypassed it in very you know, um, adaptive ways. So when, as we become more conscious for a lot of us, it, it is very uncomfortable. And at the same time, we need to learn, teach ourselves how to tolerate the discomfort. Again, whether it's developing the internal ability to regulate and or because we are social creatures. When you said that first group, right? We are primed evolutionarily to be in groups. Um, so to, to learn how to connect in those group is, is very important for us humans. So for a lot of us, and that was a very big motivator um, for the Instagram account and the community of self healers um, down to the, the virtual membership that we now offer is to create that community and that sense of safety. So learning internal resilience also at the same time, creating safety in our relationships, because not many of us have had that. 
Mm, absolutely. You've mentioned a couple of times um, the term dysregulation. And then it reminds me of something I wanted to speak to you about when I was reading the book, The Body Keeps the Score. Um, he was writing about self-regulation. And it was, again, a kind of a bit of a revelatory moment to me as to like why I might have developed certain behaviors, why I might have used certain substances as a way of self-regulating when I am dysregulated. And I wonder if you could just in kind of like layman's terms that we can maybe, you know, think about, oh, that's how that shows up for me. How, what do those two terms mean? Yes. So self-regulation, right? To regulate is to, I'm going to use very loosely, I, I, I describe things very simplistically, to to control, right? To create, to regulate is affect change on something. So when we're talking self-regulate in the context of emotions, essentially it's, what do I do? How do I bring myself from maybe agitated or activate it back down to a baseline? And so for instance, a lot of us can, if we do gravitate towards certain regulatory choices, activities, behaviors, substances, even there sometimes are clues in there, right? So for me, alcohol, I use a numbing agent even pot, distracting, right? Distancing from feelings. I tried cocaine in the uppers. I didn't really like them. My, I was already so up, right? With my emotions. So a lot of times there's even evidence of what are we trying to do? So my desperate attempt was to regulate a dysregulated system. What does that mean? I talk often in terms of the nervous system. I was stuck in fight or flight. That led to the dissociation. So for me, I picked things that I thought at least momentarily or instantaneously, immediately, as opposed to the long-term consequences, helped regulate me down. Now, someone else, right, who's in a dysregulated system of maybe parasympathetic, right, I have no energy, no interest, that person might try to regulate themselves up being more attracted to the amphetamine-like experience, the jumping out of planes, right? I'm trying to feel something. You'll hear the language used. And again, this is very a simplification, um, but that for a lot of us is our attempt at regulating dysregulation. So to be clear, a regulated nervous system, we have two systems, like I said, we have what's called the sympathetic or the fight or flight. We are actually geared to when there's a stressor, we can activate our system to sustain life, to deal with the stressor. The alternating system is called the parasympathetic or the fight or flight. Ideally, they function like the brake and a gas in a car. And ideally, we pretty much live in our parasympathetic, allowing our body to do what the name suggests, to rest, to digest, for all of our sy systems to be in that homeostasis. And then if and when, because most of us you know, aren't living under constant threat anymore, though some of us are, and this is where systems of oppression, systematic racism, and all of that are really problematic, right? However, a lot of us are getting stuck and we're not using our sympathetic to come back down to baseline. So to be clear, that's what dysregulation is when we're not having that flexibility to be essentially at rest, to activate when we need to, and then to return to rest. A lot of us are living in either end. And then, like I said, we We've, we've adapted. We've come up with our best attempts to regulate ourselves. And sometimes, like I offered, though that's a really simplistic explanation I offered earlier, though sometimes we can even see it map on to what are we choosing to do um, as evidence of what system we're stuck in. Because a lot of us are trying to regulate, again, though we're not doing so successfully. Yeah, right. That does make a lot of sense. So we have these two functions, the fight or flight, sympathetic, the rest and digest, parasympathetic. And we need both of them because there's a time for both of them. 
but we kind of because of the world that we live in because of our past experiences can get kind of stuck in one or the other and so we find substances behaviors even thoughts beliefs because you as you talk about in the book we can get addicted to thoughts beliefs emotions also which kind of either help us put the foot on the gas or help us kind of like knock ourselves out for <laughs> as in many in, in many circumstances absolutely or as a third just continue to perpetuate our yeah. stuckness because that's become our familiar yeah. so to use me as example full circle the little stressed out girl who was associated on our spaceship who by the time I probably got to pot smoking age would have said oh all I want to do is peace peace relax yet in those moments where maybe I was alone and no one was around me to stress me out quote unquote what would happen my body wouldn't be familiar. I was so used to the cortisol, the adrenaline, the stress experience that one of two things would happen. Mm -hmm. Either my mind would start to produce all the stressful things to worry about. So I might be on my day off, right? Kicked back, yet I'm worrying about, you know, the, the article I have to write or read next week. So now I've created stress from my mind. And now before I know it, I have that cortisol. I have that adrenaline in my body. I feel normal. Or if someone's lucky enough mm. to be around me, which my partners typically in the past had been, I like to agitate things. I might bring up, you know, that look you gave me at breakfast when I said this thing, and I don't like that you said that. I agitate the relationship. Before I know it, what have I probably created for myself? A stressful experience. So I talk a lot about what I term that as emotional addiction. Um, and I believe a lot of us are stuck in those cycles of dysregulation and possibly seeking to just keep ourselves in that familiar, even though logically we desperately think or are tending to do something else to say, create the peace that I was so desperately proclaiming I want it, yet I couldn't, right? I couldn't cross that bridge. I couldn't action because peace calm was uncomfortable for me it was unfamiliar and so therefore it felt unsafe so anytime I had a moment that I didn't have that activation on some level it felt unsafe it just didn't feel like me yeah right this is making so much sense and I think a lot of people will be able to relate to this I'd love to speak a little bit you have a, an incredible community on social media and social media can be one of those things. When you talk about the spaceship, I have a spaceship called Instagram <laughs> and I can so easily pop in there. And like, honestly, I have a, I had a, I did an interview for this series with a, a hypnotherapist friend and the way she described us, how instantly we can go into a hypnotic trance when we have this little screen, it's glowing, it's inciting all these emotional responses. And it's like time disappears and instantly somewhere else. So I think, I mean, social, particularly I mean, when we've seen kind of on a, a wider level, like how um, dangerous it can be when social media takes up too much of our brain space and we start to really believe and get sucked into what we see on social media um, rather than trusting ourselves and kind of like trusting what we see in front of us in the real world. So what advice do you have for people around social media use? Does it come like as, as, as a way of self-regulating or as a way of kind of like changing our behavioral states or feeling states? Yeah, social media, I want to throw this out there just to acknowledge, it's still really new. We're not used to right, how accessible we, 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 we're, we're having an inkling that it's quote unquote not really great. And I mean, I love that you're chatting to people and sharing this information of why and the dopamine, all that comes with it. The reality is we're probably not going to know for another couple decades what it really, the cost it's really playing. So with that said, as all things, I am the biggest proponent of consciousness and conscious intention around 
use of tools such as social media, because a lot of us are utilizing it as a tool to some end. So just like we began this conversation, you know, in the context of substances, really becoming conscious, it would be really helpful, the suggestion I'm going to give is to become really conscious about what, what social media is for you because it's going to be different for each of us and myself included. I spent a lot of my business at my business is run via the internet in some way, form or another. And I am active on social media platforms. So that means I'm on there a lot. So this is a conversation I have with myself. What, what, it, what am I doing when I'm on there? Cause I also use it personally. And so similarly, when I'm agitated, my, my favorite, um, I call it emotional cutting. My favorite thing to do when I'm agitated is if, if I'm not conscious is to go read negative comments about myself, my work, et cetera, because I'm agitated, right? So if I read something that's agitating, now I feel that makes sense. No. I'm in alignment, right? So for me, yeah. conscious intention and conscious use of social media is a big part of the conversation. So asking yourself or just observing, witnessing, when are you using social media? How often? A lot of us are very surprised. I know we all these, most of us have these counters on our phone to tell us how many hours, right? We might believe it, look at it, see how many hours yourself you're using it. See when, see if there's any patterning. Do you typically, are you the person that goes on when you're agitated? And then what are you doing on there? What are you engaging with? What sort of content? How do you feel more importantly, right? When you go on, when you've engaged with the content, when you sign off, Right. All of this gives us information. Um, and the more conscious we become, like I said earlier, the more we create space then over time to begin to make new choices. So for me, because I know this pattern of mine, when I feel my agitation level go up and I see myself in real time go to pick up my phone or to go on that account that I know is going to say the, the, you know, the thing I don't want to hear about myself, I can make a different choice in that moment. Um, so we want to get really conscious about what we're doing online we also want to acknowledge because there's most of us when we're online are engaging at least to some extent with some interpersonal or social media aspect. And the mm. reason why I'm highlighting this is because it's interpersonal. So now social media becomes the arena where a lot of our habits and patterns that we play out in our relationships are showing up. Right? Am I the helper in the comment section with everyone? Or am I the person who proclaims it's my belief and my belief only, right? A lot of us are gonna see a mirroring of how we show up in our personal, like our physical present lives to how we're showing up online. So now we complicate it with you know, how we're kind of strengthening again, those habits and patterns, maybe not in the direction um, that we want to be creating for a future. Amazing. Thank you. So much of what you're describing is, again, the work that I've kind of been intuitively doing myself around social media for the past year or so. I got to a place of really bad burnout with it and had to take a big step away. Very similarly to how it was with me and alcohol. It got kind of bad. I had to take a big step away, really examine it and choose very carefully and consciously like how I wanted to engage and why I was allowing it to make me feel a certain way and whether that was okay and whether I needed a better boundary there, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, I think it's, yeah, you just described a really great process for that because ultimately social media is a wonderful tool. Like we probably wouldn't be here if it wasn't for social media. And that's yeah. great. But, in, and in fact, the way you're describing it makes me think that actually when approached consciously and with awareness, the way we use social media can be a great tool for doing our work 
actually, you know, (laughs) we're describing it as this kind of small microcosm of like how we are in the world, like noticing, consciously being aware, monitoring and kind of working with our behaviors on those platforms. We can kind of practice for how we're behaving and interacting in real life. 100%. I'm going to go out there and throw a big macro statement out there, um, you know, in terms of social media, which is the the what social media is, you know, kind of for us really is representative of, of how we're using it, right? Social media just is, it's a tool. I might go as far as to say, right? It's a very neutral thing. It just that which is, right? It exists out there. The meaning we're assigning comes a lot from the past experiences we had. And again, how we're choosing to utilize it now. And I think that that macro statement applies to most things in life. And the reality being, we all are subjective in the meanings that we're assigning. So the individual journey of healing, and this is why I don't believe that there's any one size fits all or any, you know, as many of us like any one through five action steps that apply to all of us. Cause I just don't feel like that's ever true. Um, we're all in our uniqueness. So social media just is, how are we using it? What is the meaning we're allowing social media to have in our life? And like I said, I expand that. Um, to most things. And, and that allows space for social media to be something else for even my partner next to me with whom I live and who's very much a part of the business, right? What social media means for her might be different. How she uses it in each and every moment will likely be different than what it is for me. And when we kind of expand and allow something to be the neutral tool that it is, that yes, can very much have negative consequences for some uses and very much positive, even though I hate using those qualifiers, right? Helpful consequences for other uses. Um, That's, I think, the journey is finding out what all of these things mean for each of us and then giving ourselves the opportunity to consciously choose if we would like to still subscribe to that meaning. Because most of us, and you used the word belief earlier, and I talk a lot about that in my book, Ruby, most of us are still assigning the same meanings that we're delivered to us, packaged for us, that we might not actually believe anymore as our adult self. So it's, again, it's a path of individual exploration, uh, acknowledging the meaning that pretty much anything that we're doing in our life has for us, and then giving us the opportunity to, to keep what still resonates and to begin to create change in the areas that no longer resonate. I feel like everything you just said could be mapped pretty much exactly um to alcohol (laughs) as a substance Mm -hmm. and again that's something I talk about in the first sober curious book it's like alcohol just is it's a thing in the world like the way that any problems that it's causing us we're we are in active relationship in a problematic way and we need to look at where that what the root of that is alcohol is just a thing and like you say like one person's journey with substance use I'm just going to use the word use like is very different from another person so yeah really really important I'd love to there's so many things I still want to touch on, but something that came up and I'm going to go here because it's not something I think gets talked about very often, but I feel like you'll have some really good stuff to say on it. You talk a lot about digestive issues and how this can be a physical manifestation, very common, but not very spoken about because it's kind of icky and gross and who wants to talk about poop? (laughs) But a lot of us have digestive issues and we will do all the things. We will change our diet. We will do like the meditate, like all the things that we've been told, like it's gluten, it's dairy, it's this, it's that, it's sugar, it's uh, it's your schedule. When actually a lot of it has an emotional root. And, I, and, I, and it's something I'm passionate about kind of shining a light on because that was my experience. Like from, from my entire adult life, 
Um, I experienced a period of anorexia in my teens and I kind of can't remember what it was like before that, but I think it began then. I was just like really constipated. I'm just going to say it. And it was like really unbearable and also something that I couldn't really talk about and that felt really kind of quote unquote petty. Like it wasn't a big, it wasn't like debilitating, but it was just really made my life kind of crap. Literally. (laughs) (laughs) And like, and fun very much intended. And one of the biggest kind of like aha surprise benefits of quitting drinking was that just completely went away. I now eat whatever the fuck I want, all the gluten, all the dairy, all the stuff. And it has no bearing whatsoever on my digestion. And I just think about all the years I was trying to fix it that way. When to me, it seems like, it seems very clear that the root actually was the kind of emotional stuff that I was covering up with my drinking, as well as the fact that alcohol as a substance can be, you know, damaging for our, for our intestines and our digestive tract. But I'd love if you could just share a bit about that, because I feel like you had a similar experience as well. I did. I am very much a a recovering um, digestive issue person, also very constipated my entire life. Um, I so happen to come from a family, at least the the women, my mother and my sister in, in the family to my dad's eye roll. Typically, we like to talk about poop. And it was very clear to me that we all had the same issue. None of us pooped just to be perfectly blunt about it. So here I am again. Oh, okay. Well, so genetically, none of us poop. We also were living in the same environment. The the language that I use to describe the parasympathetic nervous system, otherwise known as what, if anyone remembers, rest and digest. And there lie the answers to why so many of us um, that have or that go on to whether or not we're, we're struggling with substances and or we have the mental health diagnoses. I had many. I've had generalized anxiety disorder. I've had OCD. I've had panic disorder, right? So a lot of us are accumulating that sort of symptomology. And again, I found very high rates of digestive issues across the board. And the reason is in that nervous system, that rest and digest, that parasympathetic nervous system, our body, our digestive system, well, there's two reasons. One is in our nervous system and one is in the way our stomach is structured. So our nervous system piece first, we need enough time in that parasympathetic state to allow, I'm really simply describing it, to allow our food to digest, to allow the nutrients to be utilized, metabolized, and to get to all of our organs, including our brain, which needs the most calories, the most to function. So those of us that are stuck in one of those states of activation, a lot of times are having either the extreme that you and I have had, the constipation, the constriction, right? I even, you can even tell if you were to see me, I'm still working on it. I have, you know, hunched shoulders. I mean, I picture it, my whole system was constricted um, something that used to be joked about is Nicole has the weight of the world on her shoulders because it looked like I did. And that, again, was that always something that overwhelmed and my body actually started to show. So the reason I bring that up, right, the constriction sometimes of our bowels causes the, um, the constipation look of things. Some of us have the IBS, that I can't even, this food runs through me, right? And again, some of that is related to that nervous system state of activation. We're not actually giving our body the chance to fully digest. There's also a very real function that we now understand that our stomach plays for our brain. Our belly, our, our gut, our stomach area is in direct communication with our brain. Um, and furthermore, the neurotransmitters, the serotonin, the dopamines, the things that, you know, we used to think were 
produced and contained only in our brain, we now know that a large majority of that comes from our stomach. So the, the health of our gut in particular, how much nutrients first, the most simple way, right? Am I eating nutrient dense foods and is my body in that rest and digestive state to metabolize it so that I can use it? And, or am I eating foods that are damaging my gut? And a lot of us are eating foods that are damaging our gut. So if we're not getting the nutrients, we're not going to have the, the neurotransmitters that we need to keep our brain healthy. Well, we're not going to have the nutrients or the neurotransmitters that we need to keep our brain healthy. And furthermore, some of us are eating things that are actually destroying the lining of our gut. And when, because that's already so paper thin so that the nutrients can seep out and go into our bloodstream and our organs, it doesn't really take much. And there's some foods that we know just really universally poke holes in our gut lining. And, the, and again, this is, this is a, a, a distinction of can, how much are we eating these? Um, because I'm all about conscious consumption, but some of us have these foods in our diet, meal in and meal out. And so I say all that to say the more damage that our guts have, this causes a, another issue, which is it allows toxins. It allows the stuff in our gut that we want to stay in our gut to be processed and then let out. It allows them out in our bloodstream. And the reason why this is an issue is because we all have an immune system that's ready at any sign of an invader. And unfortunately, when it sees these toxins, it knows it's not, they're not supposed to be in our bloodstream. And so what it does is it launches uh, an immune system response in the form of inflammation. And so a lot of us are, are living in dysregulation, right, of inflammation that's running rampant. And then inflammation itself has incredible byproducts, especially if the toxins travel up, you know, our, our brain has that same thin lining. So now we're creating a situation where a, there's a, now a big level of belief that inflammation causes, again, a lot of the symptomology that we're calling anxiety, that we're calling depression. I mean, there's even some theory that, you know, some of the origins of more extreme diagnoses like autism and schizophrenia are somehow related to the gut and this immune system. So I say all that to say, and I'm very happy, obviously, I'm passionate to talk about this. The gut for me was the foundation um, where I had to create a lot of change because I, I realized that I was, you know, eating a lot of the inflammatory foods. I wasn't, again, giving my body the chance to fully digest. So I will shout it from the rooftops. I have never been so regular in my life for the past probably five years. And it took 30 some years of living right in that constricted constipated body that finally, cause this is also change. It doesn't happen overnight. Finally getting attuned with my body, allowing it to go into parasympathetic, decreasing the amount of gut damaging foods I was eating, increasing the amount of nutrients I was getting before long, all of those symptoms started to actually go away. Thank you. It's so fascinating. I'm really happy I asked. And I think, yeah, it does sound like we've had a similar experience, like to think that something that's so overlooked or dismissed or just kind of like, it's just part of modern life can have such a detrimental effect on our overall well-being for all the reasons that you described. It goes so much deeper. Like there's a reason I'm depressed. It's because maybe all these toxins are getting to my brain. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I think for anyone who's resonating with that, there's obviously a lot of places you could go in terms of researching it but ultimately what resonated the most with me was like rest and digest oh duh it makes so much 
much sense <laughs> when we live in this world we do bringing it back to lifestyles we live in a world where there is something to consume do read yeah. believe think in every moment of downtime and one of the biggest parts of my own kind of like healing journey has just been allowing myself to do nothing yeah. allowing myself to have literal like nothing time you know which very very uncomfortable oh oh my gosh I, I haven't my friend my best friend from school calls me robot <laughs> because she's like you were just a machine <laughs> I've had to train myself to stop, I have I, you know? <laughs> my partner and I have two little um troll dolls I don't know if anyone remembers those and so we were get with the hair with the hair and we were gifted two of them and one of them <laughs> has army fatigues on and as soon as we we were gifted them my partner says that's yours because I you know I go into soldier mode get shit done I've gotten a lot of shit done. I have a PhD, you know, I've been very successful in a lot of ways. Um, and so a new mantra that, uh, cause I struggle to relax. Um, I now remind myself when I'm feeling that agitation and when I know my body needs it, when I just feel bone tired, my body is tired and my mind, you know, might not want to get on board. I now remind myself and I just say as simple as it's okay to rest. You're allowed to rest. Um, and I think, you know, for a very long time, and this is where it gets confusing some of the roles that are problematic are celebrated in society, have byproducts mm -hmm. of achievement, you know, that might have everyone around you. I know this was the case for me, you know, when I started to finally share that I was struggling, it, it didn't make sense to a lot of people because I didn't appear to be because I just kept myself going. So I offer that mantra for anyone else out there who struggles to rest. You know, I remind myself very frequently, um, especially with this holiday, you know, kind of week and my schedule is a bit lighter and I had a lot of time to rest. You know, that was going through my mind when I, when the other thought that came was, oh, go get, go get up and do that thing, or you need to be, or you shouldn't be right. It was just a reminder of it's okay to rest. And that's just a work in progress for me too. Mm, mm, there's time. There's time. I lived so much of my life with the sense that time is yeah. running out. Time yeah. is running out on me. There's never enough time. I've got to do it all today. Yeah. And just train it like, again, sort of like, no, there's plenty of time. And you know what? If I die today and it doesn't get done, even that is okay. But to, to kind of bring it back to this conversation today, I'd love to just finish up. If you could maybe share a bit about your own relationship with substances now. Yeah. Like is something, I know you have, you've, you've said that you have used alcohol and pot in the past, um, in ways that were maybe problematic, like where are you at with substances? Yeah, now? absolutely. So when I first um, began my healing journey, I, I cut out both completely um, because my goal was to break the habit that I was in of utilizing it all the time that I wanted to distract myself and to give myself the opportunity to explore a conscious relationship. So for me, and this isn't again, the trajectory everyone ought to take, but for me that meant hitting that hard stop, which was difficult. There was a lot of times I wanted to reach for, order that drink. Um, and what I realized is I was doing a lot of it habitually, right? Because the menu had an alcohol option on it and I was out, I was, you know, why not? And I started to see that, you know, kind of impulse. So once I stopped, and stopped for I kind of intuitively, you know, and then I allowed myself to begin to explore. So then I, I ordered the drink. Um, and what I came to realize with alcohol in particular is I don't once now, again, this was after doing the work to reconnect with my body. Cause when I was dissociated, I wasn't in my body. I didn't know how my body felt. It also came after some time of learning how it felt to be in a body that, Oh, I don't know, had energy, could get up in the morning, had clear thoughts, 
because all of that was symptoms of brain fog. That's a lot of what we struggle with when we have that rampant inflammation. So again, I speak this once I was balanced, living in my body in a much more parasympathetically balanced body that I could begin to explore what the effects were. And I share that because a lot of us have to, you know, kind of rebuild that connection to our bodies um, before we can really be conscious about how this affects me. And then I experimented, I had the drinks, you know, sometimes I had more and sometimes I had less. And I would then gauge how I feel. The same process I did with food. As I began to incorporate different types of food, now that I'm connected, I can see how it makes my body feel. And then I allow that. That's what I mean when I say conscious, you know, consumption of any. We talked about social media, right? We talked about substances. So for me, okay, let me see how I feel when I drink the different alcohols. And essentially what I realize is I don't feel good. It affects it affects my overall mood, my energy. I don't sleep well that night, even if I drink earlier in the day, you know, and I just don't like how I feel. So my relationship now is very sporadic. I won't say I'll never have a drink again. I mean, again, it'll be very contextual. I'll check in with myself. Do I really want this halfway through? I'll check in with myself. Do I really want the rest of this? Or am I just drinking this? Cause I ordered it, right? All the things that I know I do. Um, and I give myself now all of these opportunities to decide if it's working based on how I feel. Um, so that is kind of what I've evolved in all of the areas, you know, same thing with, with pie, you know, mm. do I smoke it? Yes. You know, do I do so consciously when I, yes, all the time, you know, I ask myself, do you really want this right now? What will be the consequence of doing this right now? And like I said, that, that applies to food that applies to what I'm going to do. Once I sign off this call with you, how does my body feel? Do I feel like I have energy and I want to go on a walk or do I feel like that couch is calling my name? So conscious living, I apply that pretty much as to the best of my ability. Do I still fall into old habits or they're not right around the corner? Absolutely. Um, though, again, the more I am present, the more I give myself the opportunity to choose. Amazing. Thank you. Yeah, that's so, and that's such a hugely important piece. And I just want to reiterate it. Like you, you, it's really hard, particularly with a substance like alcohol, which is so culturally sort of like sanctioned, so physically addictive, really hard to have developed that conscious relationship with alcohol until you have removed it completely so that you can get back into relationship with your body, back in touch with how it actually makes you feel. And that might mean quite a, a substantial time away for someone who's been using it really regularly, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, and again, I, you've said something a couple of times, Ruby, that I just want to highlight because you've used the word I've intuitively and in speaking about your own process. And quite honestly, you know, that, that is the goal of this whole self-healing movement, um, you know, th that I'm very much lucky to be a part of, in my opinion, you know, the goal is to actually return to that intuition because I'm of the belief that all of our higher selves, our intuitions that, you know, that essence that is us does know. Again, a lot of us are operating in very dysregulated ways. Um, I also believe a lot of us have outsourced our knowing to everyone else around us for far too long. You know, we've looked to our parents, our loved ones, our friends, our doctors, and everyone else to tell us what they think or what worked for them. And in my opinion, that pathway back home that we were talking about earlier right, is rediscovering many of, for many of us that intuition, learning how to tune in. I assure you it's there. You might be like me, so disconnected on my spaceship. I don't know. I can't tell what my, when my intuition's pinging or not. And then furthermore, to develop confidence in it, to develop trust that it actually is guiding us in the direction that's meant for us 
regardless of if it's the direction that my loved ones or my doctor or whomever it is believes is meant for us. Because again, like I said earlier, we're all subjective. And to the best of our, you know, very well intentionally, we are all leading with what works for us. Um, and that doesn't necessarily mean, and this applies to our kids as well. You know, I don't have children. I can't imagine what it must be like to see my creation. Though I assure you, our creations are much more different from us and a lot of us are allowing them to be. So I'm really happy and I thank you for, for speaking about your intuitive kind of pings along the way and for following them. Because that, in my opinion, is what the work of self-healing is, is to empower each of us to find that center, that wisdom that we all have that again, we've all been distrusting or outsourcing for far too long. Absolutely. And again, like, I think I have that trust in my intuition from watching my mom, from like literally being kind of in relationship with my mother, watching her do that intuitive path as well, because she didn't have any family to tell her what she was doing, right? She didn't have the community to tell her what to do. She had to kind of work it all out for herself and watching her do that empowered me to do it and I just think about people you know often people will be like what do I teach my kids about drinking I'm like what you teach them is what you're doing like what you teach them is your what your actions that's literally what you're teaching them and that again can apply to anything like how are you living your life that's how your kid is gonna understand to live their life that's what they're gonna learn about how to live their life as well absolutely there's so many well-intentioned parents out there that are looking for the right book or the right language or the right teaching or the right teacher right for their children. And unfortunately, the power really is in in what are you doing? What are you modeling? So back to that question, right? How do I change, you know, my child? It's the answer is by you changing by you modeling, whether it's different habits in terms of lifestyle, right, taking better care of your body, and then, you know, having that be witness to your child, or again, taking better care of your emotional body or creating this space for you as a parent to be fully self-expressed. You can say as much as you want to everyone around you. But again, what's most powerful is what are you doing? Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Thank you so much. This has just been fascinating. And it's like a drop in the ocean of what you share in your book, which condenses, I feel like, all of the wisdom into one really accessible, really kind of relatable place. So everybody go get how to do the work. (laughs) I'll include the show notes. Um, I'll I'll include the link where to get it in the show notes. And yeah, just another book to mention as well, since we talked about intuition, my first numinous books, author Natalie Miles, her book is called You Are Intuitive, which for anyone who's interested in connecting to their intuition, that's a great practical book about how to do that. Nicole, thank you again for coming on. It's been fantastic to commune with you. Of course. Thank you so much, Ruby, for having me. And thank you as always for being here. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend and leave us a five-star review on iTunes to help more people find this series. This podcast is edited and features original music by alloaudio.com. That's A-L-O-E audio.com.